Mr. A here, saying, how y'all doing? Yo! Are you ready to rumble? Or should I say tumble? Cause I don't stumble or fumble like a Craig or Brian Gumbo. Standing on the ground, flat feet first. Killing worms and drugs, and I'm doing it on my terms. Welcome to the Rumble. We are back and better than ever, helping you stay ready so you don't have to get ready. We don't want you sucker punch, so we're here each and every week helping you keep your guard up. I am Jeremy Lavelle with Remedy Claims Consulting at Claims Coach on Instagram and TikTok, and they just call me the mouth of the South. And alongside of me once again is the catastrophe queen and the claims dame, Miss Jessica Otell, and the famously fancy and the fascinatingly fantabulous the one the only baby cakes miss donna lavelle how's everybody doing today good we're actually doing this on a friday which is uh it's been a busy week for us hasn't it yeah definitely we are we are worn out i mean um we were supposed to record this an hour earlier and jess actually uh texted us like hey i need some decompressed time so we're gonna have to push yeah, this like we're already running late so. yeah it's like we're late too so here we go but to you it's coming right on time so don't worry about that um so i'm gonna go ahead and say it is time yes it is time once again for fun facts with baby cakes what do you got for us baby cakes thank you this segment is brought to you by ink the best way to get paid after a property claim ink save time get paid um did you guys know that the eiffel tower is taller in the summer there's no way yes what it's because of a thing called thermal expansion thermal that's probably not covered it's well yeah that's that's that's, that's a thing you'll probably learn as a as a pa or as you know when you get your 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 engineer's reports. I'm sure it'll say something about thermal Therm- expansion. Thermal expansion. I'm sorry. Uh, the airplane ran into this due to thermal expansion. This is nobody's <laughs> fault, and that's not covered. <laughs> so only four words in the English English language end in D-O-U-S. Do you know what those four words are? Um, horrendous. That's one. Arduous. Um, no. Arduous. D-O-U-S. D-O, yeah, I've, I've said arduous, and then I was like, no, wait, that doesn't end D-O-U-S. Oh, did you say arduous? So, okay. Um, tremendous. So, horrendous is one. Yes. Tremendous. There you go. And... I'm, I'm just... I don't, I don't know. trying I don't not know, to I don't know the other one. over here. Stupendous. <laughs> Stupendous. And horrendous. You said horrendous. Yeah. You did? Horrendous, yeah. tremendous. No, hazardous. Hazardous. Uh, yeah. Hazardous. Funny thing, we're going to be talking about some hazardous That's things right. here in a little bit. That's going to be cool. That's one of the few words that end in nice D-O-U-S. In there. And did you guys know that, <laughs> that uh, scientists have grown human vocal cords in a Petri dish? Well, they're not much good there. The do they results, plan on using them somewhere else? The results speak for themselves. Ah! They do! They speak for themselves, ladies and gentlemen. Now you know, and knowing is half the bullshit. Yeah, and that certainly speaks for itself. Guys, we have got an outstanding show. I cannot wait to get into everything. We're going to be unpacking some of these things that we love to call negotiations. And we are going to be coming to you in three separate rounds when you hear this sound. Good grief. 
when you hear this sound, you know that the round has begun. And when you hear this sound, you know that the round is over. Now, look, while Jessica and I may disagree on an item or two here and there, it is really not us that's in the rumble. It is you that is in the rumble. So we are wanting to hear from you. We get our topics from the claims that we work and the comments that we hear from you. So we're going to be working claims. The only thing that we're really missing is the comments from you guys. Keep us inspired. Keep us coming back each week. We love doing this and we love showing up for you and we're going to get into everything and I'm excited about this one. I have a whole lot to say. Well, <laughs> when do I not have a whole lot to say? But anyway, round one starts right after this. Public adjusters, listen up. It's Jeremy Lavelle, owner of Remedy Claims Consulting, host of the Rumble, and most importantly, your claims coach. Public adjuster training is one of the hardest things to find. Sure, you can take some online seminars, you can show up to conferences, but none of them tailor training just for you until now. Whether you need to learn how to estimate, scope, negotiate, or prospect, I can help you drill down on the skills you want to develop. Maybe you're just starting out and you need to learn the claims process from a to Z, or you're just wanting to help are you just wanting help on strategy on a specific claim? I can help you find the traction you were looking for and learn how to truly control the narrative in the ever-changing world of claims. You can reach out to me directly at 888-596-8772, or you can find me on the web at remedyclaims.com and just click Get Started. That's 888-596-8772 or remedyclaims.com and click Get Started. You can even shoot me an email at jeremy at remedyclaims.com. That's J-E-R-O-M-Y at remedyclaims.com. It's time to move your career to the next level. Round one, the actual negotiables. So as we were talking about in the pre-show, Jess, I'm going to let you take off on this one. What is one of your big ones that you believe is negotiable? I'm going to lose a lot of friends. In the PA industry, I've got rocks in my hand right now. I'm ready to. I'm ready to throw them. A hundred percent decking replacement on all shingle roofs. I just can't die on the hill with that. With the caveat, I do understand the science behind it. I did read the actual uh, engineering publication. I think it was the American Society of Civil Engineering that put it out. I, I could be wrong. Don't quote me. They did the math. They counted the holes that go into decking on a single roof installation for, for any kind of architectural through. It doesn't matter. Just a roof, shingle roof. Sure. In a high wind area where, where high wind nailing is required, they were able to count nearly 1,000 holes per square into decking per yeah, per square on, on, on a roof. Well, when you go and rip all of that out, you have a thousand nail holes into your decking that a new surface is going to go on. I I get that. I, I get the, you know, solid, you know, nailable surfaces, not solid nailable surface. Pre-loss condition, it was solid going. I do get that. I'm kind of willing to die on the hill for that for if you're in a high wind area such as along the Gulf or in Florida where hurricanes and, and things like that occur. I got, I get it. But everywhere else I really struggle and have a very, very hard time dying on a hill over that when the number of holes that is counted in that situation is significantly less. 
So even that, that's just one of those things. I, it, and I, along the Gulf. Yeah. Okay. I might be willing to die on that. Uh, anywhere else? I'm, I don't know. I struggle. I think it's negotiable. What say you? Well, let me say this. First of all, I want to point out that um, we've got three separate rounds here. One of the, this round is called the negotiables. And then we've got two more rounds. And one of those rounds is called the non-negotiables. What I, what I want to point out here is that is it owed for? Yes, absolutely 100% is it owed for. Yes, it is. But there is more at work here than, than I guess, you know, dying on the hill of what we expect that the carrier should pay in every single stinking claim, right? So is it owed for? Yes, it is. In fact, the code used to say a nailable surface, and then I think they changed the code somewhere in the last decade Solid. to solidly sheathed. Solidly sheathed. And and I don't know what their plan was there. So typically the code does not get less it gets greater. And so back in the previous years, much where I think that some of the um, doctrine was put into place that you, you could have a, you could have decking with holes in it that was still for lack of a better term, nailable, which isn't even actually a real <laughs> word, but I mean, it's, it's nailable. Yeah. So you could have a roof or two that had been on there, but there was still that the deck was still solid enough that it could be nailed. So the problem is, is the code got a lot more vague when they said solidly sheathed. So us as public adjusters, um, basically interpreted that to be, you know, 100% solidly sheathed, which means no holes and you can't strain spaghetti through it. Right. And then, but the carrier kind of leads it in that it can't be space decking so they're kind of, we're on two different ends of the spectrum there right and and we look at these things and how we want to define them really kind of comes down to a lot of interpretation and what the uh, city inspector I guess is going to pass but a lot of times you get cities that just don't get involved in insurance claims right and they're not going to help weigh in on what should be covered and what shouldn't be covered and what should be code and what shouldn't be code. And and then we've got tons of people who don't even pull permits. You know, they like to affect the code, but they don't even pull the permits on things. So there's a lot of that going on. The question is not whether or not is it owed for. The question is not whether or not it's covered is do I want to kick the can down the road and die on this hill long enough to actually make this a, a sticking point in the claim. And I tend to agree with Jessica. This is not something that I'm going to spend a bunch of time on. Do you want to ask for it? Sure. If you're going to ask for it, ask for it. But let me tell you this. This is and I'm going to say this on multiple topics throughout this show today is that if you don't plan on doing it, then don't ask me as a public adjuster to go fight for it. That is my biggest that is my biggest sticking point and I will bring this up again. So if you wonder how I feel about something, you'll know by the end of the show. And I agree with you Jessica, but there's a lot of things that have changed. You know, I mean one of the things that we when I when I first got into adjusting, kind of the rule of thumb was is that you could put two roofs on one 
on, right. on, on decking. Yeah. So you could go in, you could put a, you could put the original roof on it, tear that roof off, put another roof on it and tear that roof off. And then by that time, that roof is probably compromised. Well, way back in the day when that was sort of the doctrine and the rule of thumb, we were dealing with plywood sheathing. Now more than ever, we're seeing OSB. a bunch of OSB. That's right. Do you, yep. do you know what I mean? And so, Jeff, let me ask you this on this negotiable part. When you run into OSB after one roof's been on it, and let's just say that thing has been obliterated, are you – I mean, it's really kind of a claim-by-claim claim basis, yes. right? Is that yes. what you're That's what I mean by negotiable. Like, I mean, you can you can put it in there, but are, are you going – are you going to die on it and say every single claim will have this or we're kicking it to legal? That That's what I meant by it. it's negotiable. You There's a little room for flexibility versus something like a non-negotiable, something that's legally binding or, or federally mandated. Those are those are like, but something like decking. I remember um, when I lived in San Antonio, I would reach out to the uh, municipality and, and their engineer and I say, hey, what what is your stance on this? Because I'm I'm ready to fight for this decking replacement. Uh, but there's nothing in, there's nothing that I can find that shows what San Antonio's stance is on how many roof surfaces before the decking has to be replaced, no matter what. And he wrote back, he's like, that's actually an excellent question. He's like, uh, let me get back to you. He got back to me about two weeks later and he says, two, we're going to go with two. I said, okay, then that's, that's, that's the letter. You know, if I can get a letter from you and put it in my file, then I, then I always have that, that letter. So if it's three, then I know to include the letter with the packet. But if it's not, eh, you know, claim by claim. If it's damaged physically, that's obvious. That's a no-brainer. But if it's not, and obviously if it's if it's leaked and you've got and you've got rot concerns, exactly. most of the most of the roofers I know that I have talked with, I have never installed a single roof. The most I've ever done was haul bundles of shingles up on my granddad's roof. And it was a, you know, it was a small little, probably 14, 15 square roof that I hauled shingles up one summer when I wanted to make some money. And, uh, yeah, I was the guy that, uh, put all of the shingles in one spot on the roof. And then once I got them all on the roof, I was going to move them out. Well, back in this time we had three inch H decking. So we did replace some decking after I got done loading shingles cause they fell through. Yep. Code. So, <laughs> there's, there's other reasons to include it. Code, rot, things like that. But I'm talking about when, cause I've worked, yeah, I've worked in yeah. firms where it didn't matter. You will write for a hundred percent decking replacement whole roof every single claim and i i do understand it can be argued but there are some firms that it is a non-negotiable and other firms it's a negotiable i now that i've been doing this for about four years i'm leaning much more towards that i believe it's it's negotiable case by case and that you know lose a lot of friends um, for that <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, and I always talk about people are going to throw rocks at my head for this comment. Um, you know, I, I am just sort of there with you. Now, there is there's a there's one other caveat that I want to bring up where it kind of moves from the non-negotiable. Again, I want to I want to say that if you've got to be willing to actually replace it, you can't just use it for margin. Okay, so it's not something that we're going to go ahead and get the carrier to pay for it. We're going to put the roof, recover the depreciation, and they never got new decking. That there's exactly. there's a word for that, and I think it's most commonly called fraud. Um, but I would say um, 
what's really popular among the new home builds that I've seen and the attics that I've stuck my head in in the last five or six years, especially on newer homes, is that radiant barrier decking. And I don't know how many of you guys have seen that, um, but that is that has been sort of the new standard, especially here in Texas in the roofs that I've looked at. Um, is that radiant barrier decking. Now, I don't know how much it compromises um, the radiant barrier, but I do know that there's holes left in it. And one of the things that that radiant barrier is supposed to do is help keep the heat down, the attic heat down. And it also aids in the life in the life of the shingle because of how, you know, how much that yeah. thing that that heats up. Right. So, you know, in a in a especially in a territory here in the Southwest where I mean, it gets hot, it gets, I want to quit this job hot, you know? Um, and we, and I see a lot of blisters. I see a lot of blistering and I see a lot of roofers circle blisters because the, because so many granules are removed due to the fact that the, uh, the composition of the shingle just gets compromised due to the heat and the poor ventilation and mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when there's a radiant barrier, I have written for and tend to still do this. I write for new decking yeah. because of the radiant barrier. That makes sense. Um, because there's there's another product involved here. And there's there's more functionality and more performance than just holding the shingles to the house. So when that becomes compromised and damaged, I am more inclined to write for the decking in those situations. Um, again, the other thing that I look at when it comes to decking is whether or not it's plywood or OSB if it, or CDX versus OSB and OSB. If you get in there and sometimes the lower quality OSB and I, I can't tell you brands or anything like that from Georgia Pacific to whatever, um, you know, when you've got a bunch of those big chunks that have basically blown out and you know, you're not going to be able to fasten the new shingles to it. And I was actually talking to, uh, an adjuster the other day that he came up with something. I can't remember the number of nail holes, but I think he said all in all, there was something like 66,000 nail holes in this roof by the time. Cause he went and did like a test square on the bottom of the decking, which yep. I, he learned on our show, believe it or not. And uh, so uh, shout out there to Jess because she brought that little tidbit of information. He went and draw the, drew the test squares underneath the roof and, you know, kind of multiplied it out because every shingle has what six nails in it yep. or whatever. And I'm, and it, and it, and the math should work. And so he came up with a, an approximate number of 66,000 nail holes. Once the decking replaced, and it's just the carrier won't talk about it. And I think in this situation where you've got 66,000 nail holes in a, in a roof, it's probably time to pull that decking off. Yeah. That, you that know what I mean? goes back to that whole high wind nailing or whatever, or maybe the roofer prior. Uh, that's even kind of questionable. But I was going to say, maybe the roofer got, you know, nail crazy. But yeah, there. but there's also times where, like I said, that math came out to approximately a thousand nails per square. So if you've got sixty squares, you know, or or if you've got twenty squares or whatever, still it's it's a thousand per square. The chances of nails going back into the same five or six across a shingle, you know, it it's it's not super high. However, is it possible that a few may? Yes. Does that affect its ability to withstand the wind and, and keep that grip and that hold. Yeah. Is that pre-loss condition? No. 
But again, if you're not right. in that high yeah. wind area, you're not at a thousand. I think they can't, I think the total number was 490. Um, I really wish I had a copy of that resource. It, it's somewhere buried in my drive. Um, and I would, and I would I also, and I would though. also say this as, and there's, there's many other things that are like, that I would call negotiable. And we basically spent the entire round talking <laughs> about roof decking. decking. There, there's a, there's a lot of other things that you could sit here and whether or not, like for me, one of the things that I find negotiable along like roof decking is whether or not we're going to paint two coats of paint on undamaged drywall. Yes. Now I'm going to write for two coats of paint, but I'm not going to die on that yep. hill when I just basically need a color match to make the paint look consistent. You know what I mean? I'm not going to necessarily, cause I just had a water loss where the much of the house wasn't damaged. You know what I mean? But it was a bunch of open floor plan, continuous walls and ceilings and vaulted ceilings and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to paint the entire house. Did get that approved. All I had to do was ask for it. And I think the reason why I got the continuous walls is I didn't go for two coats of paint. You know what I mean? So I ended up getting this whole thing done anyway. And I, there, there are a lot of these sort of that fall under what I would call the estimating guidelines. You know what I mean? And so anytime that you're dealing with guidelines from a carrier and they're throwing guidelines at you, those I would say are most certainly negotiable, negotiable items. Mm -hmm. you, and if they're saying that it's against the guidelines, my favorite answer to them is like, oh, no, well, you're bringing up guidelines. Those are your estimating guidelines. And we're not looking at your estimate. We're looking at my estimate. And your estimating guidelines are so that you don't make a mistake. It's not so I don't make a mistake. And I can tell you that my estimating guidelines is two coats of paint on new drywall along with a coat of seal. And then, you know, there's all of these different things that, that go into it. But what I'm saying is, is some of these items that public adjusters want to die on the hill is not necessarily the best thing for your client because the idea here is to get the claim closed final thoughts on round one there jess i thought it was good i i just know that there again there are some pa firms that it's 100 percent every single loss every every roof 100 percent decking replacement in areas that are not even close like <laughs> located near the gulf or any or or anywhere else where there's or you know high wind major threat of even like tornado alley i mean it would make sense in places like that where well hey, i don't care what nails you use in a tornado none of them are gonna work so <laughs> right that doesn't matter <laughs> none of them are gonna work so i you know it's it, it i mean here in the metroplex i mean and even out where you are i mean it's not uncommon for us to get hurricane force winds just with a good old-fashioned thunderstorm yep, at least once you know, a year it's not, yep. it's not uncommon yep and so, and, and when you're dealing with that and, and the wind reports, which I find highly inaccurate from a gust standpoint, you know, I, you can't, and they, and I think a lot of times the carriers rely on them pushing their narrative of even hail size that's measured 400 foot above you before it actually hits the yeah. roof, you know, those right. kinds of things. And I want to know exactly, you know, how they're, um, those are all have to be approximations. Every one of those things have to be approximations. So just because a report says 16 mile an hour winds and half inch hail doesn't, those are approximations and our best and, and at, at best an average. So yep. remember that, um, guys, we're going to get into some things that we think are non-negotiable in round two, because it starts right after this. 
One of the most difficult claims you can work is a contents claim. It requires extreme detail and significant documentation. Ricky McGregor with Monarch Claim Services is the expert you need on your side. She will handle on-site evaluation, inventory, photo documentation, pricing, and overall contents claim organization. She will work with your team beginning to end so you can focus on the rest of the claim. Do your client a favor and call Ricky McGregor with Monarch Claim Services. You can reach her at 515-783-1434. That's 515-783-1434 or find her on the web at monarchclaimservices.com. Round two, the non-negotiables. Some things are absolute. Some things we we can't walk back. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And when you were talking, one of my favorite things, the code. The code is non-negotiable because it's the yep. law. And my favorite, my favorite, favorite, favorite argument that a carrier throws at me is they don't enforce yep. that there. Oh gosh, I I oh man, I just love yeah. how it's oh, like it's they don't really enforce. Enforced, you know, it's not really enforced. It's not, re- and and I'm not, and 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 here's the thing on that: the law exists in perpetuity. There, just because they don't enforce it today, doesn't mean when that house caves in or something happens or there's a collapse or something happens down the road, they're going to start looking at those things. They're going to start, especially if somebody dies, they're going to start looking at why. And I, I tell you what, if, if you've got a family that's living in a house and something happens because see my air quotes, the, the code enforcement didn't enforce this particular code. And that happens and something happens that results in somebody's death that is supposed to be uh, adhering to the code, whether there's a permit or not, they're supposed to be adhering to the code. That family is going to go after whoever installed yep. it. And that's why it's non-negotiable. Yep. And then that's why it's not. And a lot of, yeah. And then it comes back to the, either the carriers or, or the PA and, well, why didn't you put that in the estimate? Why didn't you put that in the scope of, of work, the scope of the loss? You, Oh, well, the insurance wouldn't pay for it. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. So now do we go after the insurance company or the public adjuster? Well, you I mean, know what I mean? For not. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who, who negotiated this? Because because evidently one of the things. And so as a public adjuster, whether they cover it or not, I'm, I'm damn sure going to ask for it. Yep. See here, I asked for it and they said no. Um, contractor asked for it. Contractor communicated that they yep. wanted it. You know or what I mean? Needed. And contractor. <laughs> Let me let me just say this while while you you know, we it's important to ask for these things. And if they're denied, make a record of it. And if the homeowner comes to you, if you go to the homeowner and go, look, this is code. I really have to do this. I really and truly have to. Let me give you an example. I just want to give you an example. Let's say that there is ice and water shield in the valleys. Now, down here in Texas, we put ice and water shield or valley metal, and that's code that there's got to be some kind of valley lining where to where there's a roofing transition. Essentially, you got to have it. So let's say, for example, that water intrusion happened and there was no valley, there was no valley metal, or there was no ice and water shield in that valley, and we had some winds come through. 
blew up some shingles, lifted up some shingles. We had enough water come in in that valley. It leaked down over, you know, the second story of the roof, and we had some drywall cave in. Well, just above that drywall, maybe there was something that was on the ceiling or or if it comes down with enough force or whatever, it falls and hits somebody just in the right way. You know what I mean? And most of the time you would be able to survive this. But what if it hit you in just the right way? You had insulation come down and somebody inhaled it. And then, I mean, there's a lot of different things. A butterfly flaps its wings in, in, in South Dakota and we've got we've got bad things that happen here. You know what I mean? And and I'm just saying some of these things happen. And when they start looking at to why that ceiling caved in and there's no valley lining directly below where the ceiling caved in, they're going to start asking some questions. That's all I'm saying. It may never happen, but nothing happens until it does. Okay. And when it does, it's going to yes. raise up a bunch of questions. And then it's on that contractor to answer those yeah. questions. And so they're going to go to their home. And so contractors, for you guys that are listening, you need to CYA here yes. and make sure that you're making your homeowner aware the carrier's not covering it. Do you want to pay for it? No, you don't want to pay for it. We can certainly install your roof without it. It's not going to stop us from installing the roof. It's not like that. It's not like they're asking us not to use nails. But I'm telling you that this is something that we have to do. And most of the roofers I know, if the carrier doesn't pay for it, they do it anyway, just for liability's sake, just for liability's sake alone. Uh, and the code's pretty clear. So one of the non-negotiables that I want to point out is the code. Code compliance is non-negotiable. You have to do that. And I believe that it's not everything is a code upgrade situation. And they like to throw everything in there at code upgrade. And it's not an upgrade. It's a compliance right, exactly. issue. Exactly. So not everything is code upgrade. And at the end of the day, if you look at, um, let me give you an example of what code upgrade would be, just to be clear, and what would be put underneath this coverage. So because I know that this is one of the things that gets negotiated quite a bit is code upgrade. And I could go back to roof decking, but because I'm tired of that, I'm going to talk about electrical wiring, okay? Yeah. And probably one of the most common things that you'll see is aluminum wire that was used heavily back in the mm -hmm. 70s. And even if you go a little bit further back to that in the 40s and 50s, they used something called knob and tube or tube and knob wiring, okay? And if you have a fire where enough of the electrical system is affected, you're going to have to go back with, instead of knob and tube, you're going to have to go back with Romax or, or uh, BC cable or whatever the case may be that would be code compliant to today. Well, be clear about this. The code upgrade coverage that would apply here does not owe for all of the electrical system. The carrier still owes under coverage A for the wiring that's there, however low or whatever. And here's the fun thing about replacement cost. If it had electricity before, it's got to have electricity now. And that's the point. They pay for the next available thing that's there. Yay! And that's what you should have in, because you can't buy knob and tube wiring exactly. anymore. Those yep. things, you can't buy it, so you would owe for the wiring that's next available. And I would even argue in that situation, it would not be an upgrade because it's the next available wiring. Right. What would be an upgrade is if the home can run on a you know 150-amp service and it had 150-amp service, and now code requires for all services to be 200-amp, and 
that would be that would be a code upgrade situation, but they would owe for the 150 amp service that was there before because right. 150 amp services are available now. They're used 200 amp services. You know, they, that's where an upgrade is. But when you have knob and tube wiring that doesn't exist anymore, they still owe for the wiring in the house. And so those sorts of things, when it's the difference between code compliance and code upgrade, that code compliance is a non-negotiable. The code is the code is the code and the law exists in perpetuity. Jess, I'm going to throw it to you. So the next I would say non-negotiables is uh, two P's, your PFAS and your PPE. PFAS, which is your personal fall arrest systems, your harnesses, lifelines, anchor points, stuff like that. Non-negotiable. OSHA says they, they lay down the law. Anything above six feet, you, you have to be tied off. There's some kind of safety protocol goes into play during your projects and somebody has to sit down and look at the risk and conduct their risk analysis and then apply those risk measures or countermeasures to reduce the risk. So one of the ways that's non-negotiable to save lives out there doing these jobs is those personal fall arrest systems, your harnesses, et cetera, and then your PPE. So your masks, your boots, your your hazmat suits, whatever's required on the job. Again, before somebody goes in, somebody has to sit down and assess those risks. That to me, you know, and, and maybe that comes from being prior service. I don't know. But, or, and then my husband being in the oil industry, um, he has seen several very unfortunate accidents in which, you know, equipment has failed. Someone had lost their life off of a drilling rig. It's just not worth it. It's non-negotiable. OSHA already lays down the law. It's non-negotiable. Like, I'm not going to lose my license as a PA or, or if I was a contractor or any, I would say, no, I'm sorry. I'm not. It's non-negotiable. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. I'll die on a hill on that one. Well, and okay, so where Jess and I may disagree a little bit here, just a little bit, and just so before you personally, Jess, throw rocks at my head, <laughs> or digital rocks, just whatever they may be, when the job calls for it specific, specifically, okay, when the job does it, when you're when you are in a trade that doesn't normally call for a piece of PPE, then. I certainly believe that PPE is warranted. But if every job you work, for example, let me just kind of give you an example. And if you are uh, an asbestos or a mold remediation contractor and your job on a daily basis is to remediate mold, and that's what you do. And if you work for a mold remediation contractor, you know that you're going to be remediating mold every day. And you're in the business of mold remediation. I believe that some of those items are a cost of doing business. That's just what you do. You know what I mean? And so it is not job specific to that particular job site. This is what you do. Just like when a when a carpenter, he shows up, every job that he works on requires a hammer. Every job that he works on, and that PPE is not staying at that job. It is nece- They are necessary tools to perform the job for which you were hired. 
Okay, so some of that stuff, and it's you got to look at it closely. You got to look at it closely and determine whether or not you're going to need that because most of these, like a carpenter, for example, probably should be wearing safety goggles. So, do we put safety goggles on every stinking estimate that we have framing work done on? I don't think so. I don't. I think that's part of what he has to have to keep him safe, so he can show up to work the next day. What do you think about that, Jess? And I'm happy to have you disagree with me because that, that's just where no, I, I am I'm, on that I'm stuff. absorbing and processing. I guess it, then it would kind of go back to even roofers. You're going to climb on a roof, which is automatically going to be a structure higher than six feet. So in theory, then harnesses and all that is part of doing the job as well under that logic. Sure. I think I think you have to um, I think you have to I think you have to consider all of that. I think some of these things I think some of these things um, are are absolutely, you know, required and should be paid for by the carrier. Let me let me give you an sure. example uh, that job. OK, so you were talking about fall arrest system, your personal fall arrest systems that you have out there. Well, one of the things they have to have is what an anchor. Yes. So that anchor is specific to that job. And however many, we don't know how many anchors it's going to take to work that job. So the anchor there works. And I think a lot of people may be running through their yeah. head. Yeah. Um, some of these require, you, you see what yeah. I'm saying? That job is going to require more anchors than any other job or less anchors than any Good other point. job. Now I want to, I want to drift into something that would be like commercial. Some jobs you're going to have to work in a place where the public still has to access that building whether it's an apartment building or a strip center or whatever canopies, these sorts of things have to, you know, when it comes to OSHA, we got to protect and defend the public at all costs, especially if we need that to continue to be accessed by them, whether it's their home or whether it's their businesses, unless you want to start paying business interruption right. claims, it may be cheaper to put up a canopy, right. Right? right? So those are things. And I think some of these non-negotiables when it comes to these OSHA requirements probably have a little bit more weight in a commercial setting. Sure. You know what I mean? Because no, it's one sense. thing for a guy to fall off of the building. Yeah, yeah. It's another thing for a guy to fall off of a building onto somebody else's car or somebody else's kid. You know, that kind of thing. Because I, you need to get out of your head that all of these things, because I, I think a lot of adjusters deal with some of these commercial losses like they're, you know, on private property at a, you know, at yeah. an insured personal yeah. residence. And that's just not the case. So open up and expand your thinking on where some of this is required. Yeah. But again... I'm going to say this again. I'm not going to pay for a fall arrest system where no fall arrest system is being used. And so that is another point that I would like to make. If you want these PPE paid for, you damn well better be documenting the PPE that you're right. using. I guess there's there's kind of different levels of PPE too, right? So maybe I would definitely kind of side with you on, look, you know, your hard hats, your safety goggles, your work boots, the the basics. That, yeah. That's that is that's. To protect yourself for safety purposes, obviously don't go in there with flip-flops and freaking tennis shoes and step on nails and whatever. Wear the basic or maybe level one PPE, but I I, I do have I'll, I'll I'll side with you on that one. Um, I think perhaps level two, level three, like maybe various levels would be more job specific, but you know definitely things like well, hard hat yeah, safety goggles. Yeah, I mean when you phrase I mean, it like that, I, I see what you're saying and I I'm good with that. Yeah. Some of some of the job sites require more safety equipment 
some of the jobs require more safety equipment, more safety protocols than other jobs right. do. And so that's that's kind of what I'm saying. And that's where you that those things I believe the carrier absolutely owes for. If you're working on a 14, 12 pitch roof, it's probably going to need to be some anchors there to effectively replace that, because I don't want somebody sitting in a pair of sticky shorts trying to nail trying to nail shingles to my 14, 12 pitch right. roof. I really don't. I, I want them tied off and right. safe. Right. You know, so. Um. Anyway, I, I, you know, those are those are things that I need you to kind of think about. Are we out of time yes, already? Can you believe it? Oh my god! I'm gonna. <laughs> good grief! That just blew by. Oh my god! So those are the non-negotiables. We got the code and OSHA guys. Throw some comments in there for us on other things that you think are negotiable and non-negotiable. Um, these are all really good. I had no idea that this conversation would go like this. I just think that I, I'm just stuff. I'm just losing my mind here. Um, and round three is going to actually be pretty pretty exciting. It's like how do you negotiate when you don't have anybody to negotiate with? That's coming up next in round three. When choosing someone to help with your online marketing, make sure you go with someone that has years of experience. Our good friend Sally at Thrive has over 20 years of digital marketing experience. She can build you a beautiful 15-page sleek, interactive website, post on your social media platforms multiple times a week. She can do a video, an amazing CRM to manage and uh, maintain and nurture your clients, text, email marketing, review generation, a business listing on 60 plus search engines, including three voice networks, appointment scheduling, estimates, invoices, payment processing, and more. She will also create for you on uh, on Google, a Facebook page, in Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you need these for your businesses, she'll, she'll help you create those pages on all of those sites. If you already have these pages, she'll optimize them for you as well. Call or message Sally today. If you want to get started, you can reach her at 214-789-1651. Again, her name is Sally Brigance. Her number is 214-789-1651. And uh, you'll also get a landing page the day you sign up. When you send her a referral that signs up with her, she'll credit your billing account. Logos are also available. Um, and she also offers a lead generation service in SEO, search engine optimization, where she can uh, guarantee you to appear on the first page of Google or your money back. It is spelled T-H-R-Y-B. And you can find my good friend Sally Brigance, and that's spelled S-A-L-L-I-E. Brigance, B-R-I-G-A-N-C-E, and she can be reached once again at 214-789-1651. Round three, how to negotiate when there's no one to negotiate with. Okay, I know this round's going to feel like 30 seconds. I, I know that because one of the biggest things that I, I hear taught my good friend, Steve Patrick talks about all kinds of, you know, the, the art of, uh, the art of persuasion. There's a lot of training out there on negotiating. I know, 
Uh, Matt Mulholland puts out all kinds of training, and I think they're all fantastic. Please don't get me wrong. I am not criticizing. These things are going to help you in business. You should know them. I think you should know them from a point on how you work these negotiations. But by and large, what kind of the landscape has been, Jess, is we're not able to negotiate with the desk adjuster. That's right. Do you know what I mean? Like they they basically shut down any opportunity. Like I have sent multiple claims in just this week alone where I had to write an email back. It's like, why didn't you call me so that we could discuss these things? It's still wrong. Yeah, they've, they've sent out the sub like they don't. I mean, they'll just try to pay the claim to the best of what they think is right. And they don't want to get you on the phone. One, I think they're going to they think we're going to eat them alive because I guarantee you I'm more prepared for this argument than you are way more prepared. I guarantee you I know policy better than you do. I guarantee that, you know, because all I've done is study this one claim, you know, and I'm ready for this thing. And But a lot of times you'll get guys that just won't, you'll get desk adjusters that just won't negotiate. So what do we do in those situations? Because, I mean, that's why there's no silver, silver bullet out there because carriers often aren't in a position where they're going to negotiate what they think is going on with something. You know, I mean, are you running in that too, oh, Jess? big time. I, I think the, when I went to the Hull class that um, Steve Harmon, Paul Udoge, and Dave Lockard put on, I'm so glad I went to that class because one of the things that Dave or Paul, one of the two got up there and said was, a lot of times the carrier is not actually making a coverage decision at all. They are making a business decision and as soon I've said that as soon as that yeah. came out of his mouth, I just breathed this huge sigh of relief because for years, I mean, many hurricane, hundreds and hundreds of claims that I've touched in some way, shape or form, whether administratively, whether I did the inspection, I, I helped prepare an estimate, whatever, some way, shape or form, I touched claims. Watching so many of them go to legal when they really had no business going to legal. There was no reason it could not be settled together, negotiating together. I, I, I thought there's just, you know, I, I've got to be do something wrong or maybe every company that I've worked for, we're all doing it wrong. There's something that's wrong, wrong, wrong. I don't know. I couldn't put my finger on it. It was depressing. And as soon as he said it, it just slapped me big time in the face. Like, God, he is so right. It doesn't matter how well prepared you are, how well documented. Well, it does matter. Okay, let me rephrase that. It matters. Do the right thing. Do the due diligence and documentation. Yeah. But right. at the end of the day, they could say, go pound sand. Sorry, we're, we're still not paying. You know, they're, they're, they are hoping and, and banking on 99% of everybody's going to go away. And all they have to really deal with at the end of the day is the 1% that's willing to stand up and fight. That, that 99% gets reinvested into the stock market. It gets re, you know, they make money off of it. It's, it's a business decision. It's, it's in some cases, I wonder just how much cheaper it is to just take a lawsuit and a little punch in the cheek, slap on the hand than it is to actually pay a claim correctly from right out the gate, like the way it's supposed to be paid. I wonder how much cheaper it is. I well, don't know. I Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, we can go back to the McKinsey report that basically said you've got to deny more claims. In fact, John Grisham wrote a book about this called The Rainmaker. 
and it's a it's a novel so it's a fictional story about and it's kind of centered around health insurance where basically the internal guidelines of the carrier were to deny every claim and it was it was right there in the guidelines that this is how we process claims now again this is a fictional story but one of the things that the McKinsey report did when um all state um, I think this was right after they broke away from Sears and Roebuck. So for those of you who didn't know, Sears and Roebuck started Allstate. Yeah, the, the department store is the one that started this insurance carrier that this. we all love to deal with <laughs> today. And one of the things that they said is you've got to deny more claims. And so the law of large numbers comes into this thing. And um, Jess, I think you'll probably back me up on this one when you talk to somebody who's not in the industry and they ask you what you do for a living and you tell them I'm a public adjuster. I know you're working um, in a different in a different capacity sure. right yeah. now. But when you were do- working as a public adjuster, yeah. um, you know, most of, most people would go, what's yeah. that? Yeah. So. You know, they're they're not even aware that that we exist. And so because of the public, the the low, the low capacity or the low, the low public awareness that exists of what we even do, that translates into how many claims we're actually involved in. And I think the last little statistic that I heard is that 88 percent of all claims go completely and totally unrepresented. It's just the carrier comes out. The the guy writes his estimate. They people pay it, and like, I guess you that's know, just what I get. I guess that, and and a lot of people believe that carriers are like banks. And I'm not sure that this is an accurate statement, but you know, banks aren't really known for making a lot of mistakes. But I can tell you, carriers widely are known for making mistakes. I have yet to see an estimate that I've seen some good estimates. Okay. I'm not going to say that they're all this way, but, but the vast majority of them have some kind of need for supplementation of the scope that they did see. And I'm not talking about, we pulled, we pulled the shingles off or we pulled the drywall down and found out that there was some rotted decking and I, and you know, we discovered damage along the repair process. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is how the carrier initially approaches the loss on what they know is damaged. And I look at these estimates a lot of times and they know and and they they throw out I'm I'm just gonna throw this example out, content manipulation. Okay. They'll give thirty-five dollars for a small room. You know, and the the adjuster goes in and goes, Okay, well this room is only 28 square feet. And I know that's a really small room, but take like a pantry and they're looking at the square footage of a pantry. And it's like, I don't know if you want to come look at my pantry. I don't think I could get anybody (laughs) to manipulate the contents of my pantry for 38 bucks. You know what I'm saying? It's more work than that. And often when they're like a pantry is a good example. There's a specific organization to a lot of pantries that are out there. You get somebody that's got a significant case of OCD they're wrestling with and you put that green bean can back in there that's not turned just the right (laughs) way. And I mean, you start putting pasta next to breakfast cereal and you might have a felony on your hands. And so I'm I'm just saying that some of this stuff matters when it comes to 
content manipulation. And they're not investigating these sorts of things at all. They're not even asking the question. They're looking at the square footage of the room and go, this is what it should be. And And that's completely and totally inaccurate. Sometimes I think it's just, it goes back to plausible deniability too. If I investigate enough, of course this claim is going to increase the more and more I investigate. So keep it simple, stupid. You know, basic line items, they probably have their little template of five line items for a roof, and that's just what they drop into the sketch, and that's it. They call it a day. But when you go to negotiate, and they're like, no, you know, this is this is it. Take it or leave. They're not even negotiating. You know, what's a, what's a PA to do? Well, first is don't take it personal. That's what I was getting back to, the whole why I brought up the they're making business decisions, not right. coverage decisions. You may have sat through, you may have read that policy. You may have understood the in and out of that policy. You may have have formulated very thoughtful responses to the negotiation and you're just stonewalled. You just hit the brick wall. It's not personal. They've been told by their people who have also been told by their people and their people and their people. Now you'll still get the, you know, the asshats out there. Excuse my language. I don't even know if we're allowed to curse on this show, but you can bleep that out. Oh yeah. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, well, there's still going to be those folks out there that you go to the supervisor. Then you go to the supervisor. The supervisors, I'm finding more of supervisors are being non-negotiable now, too. Whereas before, you know, you could get somewhere with it. You could at least get a negotiation going. I, I don't even see that very much more in Texas. So you could. Uh, I do know of some uh, two firms that they go a third level up before they file a formal complaint with TDI. Or, or the Department of Insurance. I, I would say after the maybe the first supervisor, maybe you could, maybe the, the supervisor after that. But people are having to go higher and higher up the chain just to get a basic negotiation going. Do it. Just realize it's not personal. Just if this person's stonewalling you, okay, go to the next. It's not personal. If the, if the next one is doing this, go to the next one. File a formal complaint. After that, then... The next thing I do is I formulate a discrepancy report. Um, I think other people call them comparative analysis reports. There's different words for them, but we're all kind of doing the same thing, right? Here's what you wrote. Here's what I wrote. Everything, you know, we agree on, I'm going to take out and focus on just what's left in dispute and then provide the reasoning one more time, reference, you know, photo report, photo number 12. This is why I say this needs to be in here, blah, blah, blah. Submit that thing. If they don't respond, again, it's not personal. So don't take, I took it very personal the first two years as a PA. Don't take it personal. If they still don't, don't want to negotiate, drop your final demand and, and go and start talking about some attorneys or, or the next step. For that insured, or the next step, which may even be appraisal or something like that. One yeah. of the things, that, and you know, and I mean, and and because we have seen a uptick, I would say, in business decisions versus coverage decisions. I think we've seen a big uptake. And let me say this: there is no argument that you're ever, 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 ever going to make that is going to make that that's going to bring someone to lose their job. So when they've been told, like, say, for OMP, if they've been told that we don't cover OMP under any circumstances, we're not going to do that. There is no argument that you're going to make that is going to make them go, my job is worth this. Yeah. 
You know yeah. what I mean? And so when you when you realize you're up against that, just as right, escalated if you can, that has become even more and more difficult. But I mean, you keep pressing and you have to get creative when you're trying to escalate a claim. I did a reel on this not too long ago. Um, if you've got an agent that that that's on your side, you can reach out to the agent. I often just hang up and call the one eight hundred number back and get their customer service people and find out who the who the supervisor of this yep. person is. You know what yep. I mean? And but even the customer service people are getting savvy too. I can put a note in the yep. system to have a supervisor call, call you. you, and it's like son of yeah. a gun. I can't even get through to supervisors anymore. Yep, absolutely. Well, I have. I pushed and pushed and pushed on some things. And, you know, I had a 27 year veteran or I think it, it's well over 20 years, nearly 30 year veteran um, with the carrier. Basically, I, I had her so backed against the wall. She gave up and said, I'm going to have you talk to my supervisor. And so I now have a video conference call with the adjuster and the supervisor coming up next week nice. on a on a large loss that I mean. So, I mean, there's there's things that you can do. Sure. There are things that that can be pushed forward forward. I know the people that you want to talk to with State Farm are not managers. I'm just going to give you a State Farm example. They're team managers. That is the title of the person that is just below sort of executive management. They are the head of every manager that's there. You know what I mean? And so when you can get a hold of those people and State Farm is the one title that I know. I don't know what the titles of the right. any other ones, but that is something that you can look at there when you get ready to escalate. Jess is absolutely right. You've got to push to escalate. It's not just, I'm tired of what you're telling me, so let me talk to your boss. I mean, that is just not something that's as easy as it once here, was. Here. You know, and so here's another tidbit. I, I learned this one. I'm going to give a shout out to Sean Hodge for this one. Um, I learned this back in 2019. Yes, February 2019, when I took public adjuster boot camp. And it resonated with me because we use this in the military all the time PowerPoint presentation to tell a story. Sometimes the roadblock in the negotiation is that you, you're looking at a 40 page estimate, you're looking at 400 plus photos that may or may not be annotated that may or may not have comments to each and every single one of them to some of these adjusters on the other end that have a hundred plus claims open at any given time. They just may not be absorbing the information that you're providing. And so switching it to uh, like, like I said, Sean Hodge was just like, use a PowerPoint, just tell the story with some photos, you know, maybe make a little video or, or, um, and I learned this from uh, Tobias Patch, another shout out. Loom. Loom is a fantastic tool that you can use. It, it records your computer screen and you can, and it puts your little head down in the bottom corner or somewhere on the thing. And you can brief and record that as a brief and then send them the link. And then when they're ready to absorb the information, they can click on the link and they are they're, they're engaged, they're present, whether you're running off into the field and doing your thing. And, and that skips the whole, oh, well, can, let's get, let's get together. Let's, what, what do you got on your schedule? Well, I can do Friday. Well, I can't do Friday. Well, about, now we got to push it out two weeks just to get around this little presentation. Just send them a link. And so that's sometimes the roadblock in negotiation is how the person on the other end receives and processes the information. So maybe we just change it up. Some people may just be more visual. 
you know, Jess, you're absolutely right because most of these people are not trained in the in the area of construction and what it actually takes. I want to I want to throw and you do have to draw the dots really close together and you have to use pictures, you know, and illustrations and and analogies and 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 to communicate some of these things because believe it or not, they're trained to be adjusters. They're not trained to be contractors and so don't get frustrated with them when they're not contractors and so you have to draw the dots really close together and i want to say this one last thing and this is just something that i have been workshopping and i have had some pretty decent success with it that you guys can try one of the things that i do when i know that my estimate is way higher than their estimate and i know it's going to be i go in and exactimate and i write I, I just send them in exact to make the, the scope, scope report. Yes. You said that and, I think in like one of the very first episodes I think you ever recorded. And I remember going, holy shit, that's genius because that's the first hurdle. Let's just agree to scope. We'll, we'll deal with dollars. Let's just talk about yes. the scope. They go, they go, well, there's no pricing on here. Genius. <laughs> there's no pricing on here. And it's like, well, the pricing doesn't really matter. What we're looking at is if it were $12, would you agree to this scope? Do you think that this scope is accurate? Because if you agree to the scope, I can't even, I can't tell you what we think it's going to cost because now once we agree to scope, never mind the money, let's look at the scope and then I'll go get a contractor to tell me what he's going to do this scope for. Since you want to be so involved in the work that actually gets done, let's agree and talk about the scope of what needs to be done because the scope is going to determine whether or not there's coverage for that thing because we know what the dollar amount is. The dollar amount is set at the limited liability on the declarations page. That's the amount of money we're working with. Okay, so if you agree with the scope, then we'll go find a contractor that's going to perform this scope. And then you can send out your scope. And if you want to bring in another contractor that's going to look at it, we're all comparing apples to apples here. We got to agree on scope at some level and start sending those scope reports in. And that is going to help you negotiate the price because often what they do is they flip to the bottom line. They go down to that claim summary at the bottom and they see that your, that your number is twice as big as their number. And then it just gets a big big red X, they pitch it in the trash can and you don't get to talk to anybody. Go ahead, Jess. 100% agree with what you just said. I, I mean, if I put myself in their shoes too, and I'm under a lot of pressure to, to save the insurance company money and, and blah, 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 blah. I, yes, I would do the same thing. What are, why, but we're all adjusters. We're doing the right thing out there. Our guy only wrote for 60,000 and this stupid PA wrote for 120. Like, no way. The only part I would wonder, and this is more of a legal question, um, we're, there's duties after a loss, right, in the policy. One of them is yep. to provide a value to the loss. So if we left the value out, can we still be considered that the duties after a loss have been met and the clock this starts? Is what, how, typically, how long do you have to provide to, to fulfill the duties after a loss? I think it's 60 days, yeah, 30, right? 60. Yeah. Yeah. Depends on states. Yeah. 60 yeah. days. How can I provide you a proof of loss when we can't settle on scope? 
we both don't we don't we don't agree to scope here and we've done some additional investigation this is what and basically what i can do is and, and the reason why i can do this and the reason why i think this way and i understand your question your point here and i know we're going really long and i'm sorry about that baby cakes but i'm going to wrap it up with this i really am the point of the proof of loss and having 60 days is so that we can conduct an investigation and what the carrier often does not do is conduct a full and complete investigation yeah. of what the loss is they just summarily deny it with prejudice and they do not look at anything else and they're just going to stick with their guy that has no experience in the code, no experience in Xactimate, no experience in construction. And this is what they because he went out there and snapped a few pictures and you and usually the person you're talking to hadn't even been out there and yeah. they're just going to go, OK, here we go. Here we go. Did you have something, baby cakes? I didn't. You kind of look like you wanted to say something, so I didn't want to. She's cut like, you stop off. talking, you guys. <laughs> stop talking. So, guys, that's the uh, that's. I mean, that's really all I have to kind of wrap that round up. Use that scope report because I think it's worth it. You have sixty days, and but don't drag your feet. Get the information and get that information to them, guys. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, we definitely want to hear your comments and your questions. If you found it valuable please click like and subscribe. And if you know somebody that needs to hear this, please take some time to share it and uh, let everybody know about the rumble. But in the meantime, we will be back next week. So stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And we will see you on the next one.